everybody. Howdy. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And we're back for A-B testing episode... 46. Hey, Brent. Yes, Alan. I don't think we're alone now. <laughs> we are not. Today, we have a special guest. Is he special or just a guest? He's a special guest. A special guest. Uh, Steve Rowe is a data scientist manager uh, in the Windows team. Uh, his journey has been much like myself. Um, why don't you say a few words, Steve, about how you got here? Sure. So uh, I'm Steve Rowe. Uh, I was, I've been, a, I came through the same similar channel to, to um, Brent and perhaps Alan. I was a test developer for a long time um, in the, the Windows team. I did multimedia for a long time, and then I did some developer service stuff and, and then made a change over to data science as I saw things moving and changing, and I thought that there was a lot more power in figuring out what, whether we were doing the right thing or not and bringing quality through data rather than quality through repeating testing over and over and over and over again. What's wrong with that? People are now worried for their jobs. Don't, don't freak them out. There is, yes, there's some of that. There's going to be, uh, what was it called? Creative destruction, uh, I think would be Schumpeter's turn that uh, is going on in some of this. So I don't think you'll get rid of testers, but I think that there's definitely a reduction in the need for uh, raw testers as they're replaced by data. Just the same way that there was kind of a reduction in the need for uh, manual testers as test development picked up. Yeah, you'll see if you follow uh, Steve Rowe's blogs, uh, you'll definitely see that he's cut from the same cloth as most of the the three. Actually, it occurs to me, uh, we have two of the three in the room today. Wait. Yeah. I think I'm He's, one. Is he? I don't get Yeah, but Alan doesn't listen to the podcast. Do I, I have do. multiple personalities. Those guys are smart. Oh, <laughs> uh, God. Brent, Brent, Brent. So I have a question. I've been waiting to have a guest to do this because like testing, if you ask two testers what they do, there's a lot of overlap Venn diagram, but there's there's differences. And I think... I bet my hunch is it's the same thing in the data science world. So you've listened. You know Brent really well. You know what, we, what he does. Sure. What are some things uh, that maybe differ in what your approach and what you do and then what Brent does? Um, I don't quite know what Brent does well enough to tell you exactly what. Yeah, Brent the, doesn't do anything well. Well, then I do things well. So there's the, there's the <laughs> I difference. do perception management really well, apparently. <laughs> so my team is kind of a split team. Half my team is what I would, I would call a data engineering team, uh, and the other half is a data science team. And so we spend some of our time figuring out how to move data and process data at volume, and then some of our time trying to actually analyze data and figure out what the insights are. Um, I think the big difference is organizationally, we're probably at different spots in an organization. Windows is still trying to figure out uh, how to use data. And so um, as you guys have been talking the last few times about the, the process through data, um, we're clearly past the data oblivious phase. We now know data exists, but we're still in this phase that I don't think you quite mentioned, but kind of a, a confirm, confirmatory data stage where half the time we want to use data, but only if it confirms our intuition. Um, and we don't really want to be challenged by the data. I've heard some people around me say, you know, I only want this result if it's going to show me what I want, because if it's, if it's not what I think is true, then I know that the data is wrong, which is clearly an interesting stage to be in. So a lot of our job is spent trying to get the organization to pay attention to data, to become more data literate um, and more understanding of what data should be used for. So we have less uh, opinions and more um, data-driven decisions. That's actually very interesting. Um, there's something we talked about that data aware stage, which was interesting, and maybe it's somewhere in there. And I think you're much farther along than my org, for example. But uh, there's a data trustworthiness. Remember, we used to deal with 
used to, like last week, with test trustworthiness. Can I trust that this test failure is a product failure? Or can I trust that this test passing means the product's working correctly? We kind of, there's a, not kind of, there's a huge parallel with data. Can I, is this data telling me, uh, do I believe this data? Do I not believe this data? Right. And I think that's, that's accurately a question people ask because the one thing I keep telling my team is when you're writing programs and you get them wrong, oftentimes they crash or they go clearly incorrect. If you're using math, it doesn't generally crash. You can divide by zero. You can get some imaginary numbers but and not in numbers. But otherwise, it doesn't crash. It will happily tell you that the average house price is $2 billion. And if you believe it, you know, that's the case, right? It won't tell you, sorry, you gave me the wrong input. It'll just tell you the average house price in Bellevue is $2 billion, which is off by at least one zero. At least, yeah. So I just had this happen yesterday. I uh, I got the, the phone call, the IM, summoning me to the boss's rooms, the VP's room. And uh, we looked at the bug data and some uh, just going back a decade, looking at bug data. And... Uh, incoming rate was dropping way down. We're at the part of our product, right, where it should. And he looked, I don't believe it's dropped down that far. I said, well, that's what the data says. Let me go take a look at it. Uh, I that It is a little bit too good to be true, but I think we're over that corner. And sure enough, I go back to the data. Someone had mucked with a query underneath me and, and, got the, and screwed it up. And they're off by um, about half. So uh, the numbers were... Not good, but it's like I think any time what I, my lesson learned there was uh, trust but verify. Just I think with, with yeah, I think that was yeah. wise wisdom yeah. from way back. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely seen it happen both ways. It's right? still people, true here. People find data that they want to believe and they they believe it to be true. I remember years it, and years ago, somebody did some analysis, not like data analysis, but some analysis of. Uh, we had this big system called WTT, Windows Test Technology or whatever, and there was all these jobs that ran tests, like thousands and thousands of jobs that ran tests. And somebody came in one day to a develop- director's meeting, and they said, half of these jobs don't work. I ran my tool, and I found out that half of them don't work. They just can't run at all. And they were beating us up because we were all idiots for not having working jobs. And we go back, and we're like, well, they actually do work. So what was going on? Well, their tool had uh, forgotten how to parse, or they hadn't built it how to parse um, variables. And so there might be a directory like, you know, SQL and backslash Windows. And then we would say Winder in, as a variable. And it wouldn't parse the directory. And it would go, well, there's no w- directory called Winder. So therefore, this can't possibly be accessing anything on the system. They were happily trusting their data instead of verifying it. And they were, you know, and that happens both ways. It happens that way or it happens on the dev side or the PM side sometimes where they don't want the data to tell them something wrong. Like, I don't trust it no matter what because it's not matching my intuition. You do have a lot of those problems in... In the data science space, I'll give you an example. Just yesterday, we have a new data scientist that ramped up. He's come from Office, where they have a much more well-documented, curated list of data sets. And he's like, hey, I want to do, is essentially, hey, I want to do data science. Can you uh, point me to the documentation for our data sources? And I'm like, okay, dude, you and I need to meet. Um, because there are literally hundreds of them, none documented. Oh. Right? We have we have this one system that does uh, uh, kind of automate away all the data movement for us, 
And they are able to use reflection to get uh, essentially a reflection to get the schema and publish the schema. But um, you have you have things like a widget GUID and a widget ID. Are these things the same thing or are they not? Right. We, you have a lot of um, exceptions in the data because the data doesn't come to us clean. Uh, you have a lot of people who will go to the raw data directly, directly operate under the belief that they do actually understand everything about the data that they need to, which is, I think, similar to what Steve was talking about, but they don't. So part of the things I do now is, hey, I'll point you to the data. Um, if, if you present any analyses you do without vetting it through me to make sure you've got the tribal knowledge right, Dude, you're on your own. And when someone comes to me and says, hey, your numbers don't line up with Brint's, I, I'm telling you up front, you're the one that's going to do the, the, the digging to figure out why. So what do you think is the right level of documentation to do on data sources? Like I've seen people that want a, a white pages of data, right? I want to be able to like point you at every single data source and I want to have them all fully documented. And then I've seen teams that operate more like what you're talking about where it's there's a bunch of data and you can kind of tell the names, but you can't tell anything else. Where's the right balance? Because you can get it wrong. You can easily over-index. Uh, so I'll tell you the approach that my team's taking now. Um, we are building what we call the CDW, which is a common data warehouse. Uh, and it's initially we had planned it to be something more directive where we would build it up and then democratize it. Now what we are doing, because I, – so I flatted that as a proposal, and what it turns out is my own team, Dev and PM, uh, they're at the phase of, yeah, that could be really useful as long as we don't have to build it. And so I think the ROI of us doing that up front is rather low because it's uncertain who who are going to be my customers if I build it. But – I need the data curated for, I need a subset of it for my purposes. So what my team's going to do is every time we ingest a new data set, we'll curate it and then we'll document it and we'll do it one at a time. um, I'd say right now, most of 80% of what I'm working with is against 20 different data sets. That's easy enough to document. Um, there's, There's a lot of asks for a lot more, but it's not high in my backlog today. So when it becomes when it becomes it and I and I pull the data in, I'll document it. Um, in the meantime what I will do is document and police uh, standards of practice. So those those others who want a different data set, I'll say, hey, you're welcome to add to the CDW, turn it into sort of a shared source type project. And um but you, need to, you will follow these rules because if you don't and I discover it, I will remove your data from the CDW. Right? So I turned it into much more of a shared source but moderated to prevent broken window theory. So you have a few sources, a limited number of sources that are commonly used that yep. are all uh, documented and then everything else is kind of still the Wild West. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. What are some examples of data sources you use or data sets? Uh, you, can, you can generify for the external audience. And so right now I'm spending a, a large portion of my time focused on availability concerns and reliability concerns. Um, so uh, we have a transaction feed for the heartbeat of VMs. Is the VM up or down? Um, we have 
a ton of metadata feeds. We have another transaction feed that that we use quite often, which is our um, we call it our control plane. It's essentially, hey, how many times the customer says create a VM? Do we actually create a VM? Okay. Now those two together, we can then um, come up with new insights like, hey, um, if a if a VM goes down, can we determine if it was because the customer asked for it to be down, which the heartbeat feed won't necessarily tell you, but the control plane feed will. Um, and then we have a just a crap ton of, of dimension feeds, which is essentially metadata about the nouns that we see in the transaction feeds. Okay. So we'll have a, a VM dimension. It tells us everything about where that VM lived and who it belongs to. We have customer dimensions that say, hey, this customer is uh, Walmart, for example, and their headquarters are over in wherever Walmart is. Isn't that personally identifiable information? It is not. That is tenant, what's known as tenant identifiable information, and that is um, fine. I I said that because we've had the same discussion often in my team. Yeah. So what about you, Steve? What data sets does your team primarily work on? So we have of? quite a I work in the developer space. So I work with a lot of uh, application development and application lifecycle uh, kind of data. So we have a lot of streams that show us like what applications. Uh, this is for people that send us data or are in the beta program, not the general uh, machines out there. But we have data that tells us like what applications were installed or attempted to install and which ones succeeded or didn't succeed, what the application life cycles were, was it launched, did it go into suspend, when was it killed, or was it closed down, that kind of stuff. And so we can see whether or not applications are successful or not. We also have interesting data. We can watch what APIs various apps call. Um, And so we can use that data to do cool things like figure out whether or not the build of the operating system regressed an app. So let's say that maybe the Facebook app calls this networking API 40 times in the first minute or whatever. If I, I can actually watch that over time and say, oh, on this day, it dropped down to 20. We probably just broke that application. What did we do wrong? I don't know yet. We'll go figure it out. But we can actually see in the data that that application broke on a given build of Windows because the, the, it behaves very differently than it used to behave. That's cool. Wasn't Windows recently in the news on this data thing? Isn't it? Is wasn't it Windows the where we announced or where it was announced that we are following all of you? I don't think so. No, no. I, I, there was some news. I don't actually follow the news all that much. <laughs> okay. um, uh, we don't follow everybody. We certainly don't. We have very uh, strict restrictions on pri- personally identifiable information and all kinds of stuff that we do to make sure that we can't track people. You can also turn it off um, and, you know, that kind of stuff. So if you're in the beta program, we tend to watch more because little checkboxes that tend to be on by default. Um, but uh, a typical person using Windows has a lot more control over it, and we don't do anything that we would identify you as anything. So so you do not have the ability to, to see what the uh – websites alan is looking at we go out of our way not to be able to do that. <laughs> just mostly i shop on amazon just total tangent because that's part of the show i um was talking to this neighbor of mine works at amazon and i said man if i got a discount there oh it says we get a discount and but it's like um it's not really much they get like 10 percent up to a thousand dollars save yeah so, so they get a hundred dollars so, a year so, yeah so basically they get a hundred dollars right <laughs> It's not much. <laughs> and you worked there for two years, so really you get about $200 as your bonus. Yeah, it, it, it might that, be more than that, but it, it's like a really – when you do the math, he's really excited about it. The math, I go, wait a minute. Yeah, it is something like that. <laughs> I've heard friends talk about it. 
So that's their equivalent of the company store program? I guess. Because, yeah, I'm... I don't like shopping in stores, so I'll buy clothes in stores. And obviously, I don't buy clothes very often, but everything else I buy. Eventually, they wear out. Um, You don't have have to stop wearing them when they wear out. That is a common misconception. (laughs) You can just keep on wearing them. This T-shirt I bought in 1998, still little colors falling off. It's like Windows 95 on it or something. (laughs) No, I I, I was wearing this when I was working on Windows 95. And that's the nice thing, right? With... With uh, if he just waits long enough, he'll he'll have his team feed him uh, new clothes. Although no one commonly gives out uh, t-shirts are common, but no one's doing pants. No, I haven't. I don't know that I've ever gotten pants. I have. Me neither. No, I'm I'm kind of upset. I think I saw a short, pair of shorts once. That's an oversight. That's I don't nothing. I, shirt, lots of t-shirts. Jackets. I just got a new, yet another jacket. I've gotten two jackets on this team, a sweatshirt and a jacket. So maybe you should propose when your when your product finally ships, you you get a pair of sweatpants with the product name right on the butt, like those pink ones, right? Yeah. Or juicy. That's oh, that's the name of our product. They just take thanks for leaking our product <laughs> yeah. name, Microsoft Juicy for business. Actually, I saw PR for your product uh, recently, so you guys are announced now. No, we're not. I didn't see anything. Nothing. No, nothing. Wait, nothing. Really? I saw something. There's nothing. Uh, nothing condoned by our organization has been released on the interwebs. Gotcha. And that's where we're going to keep that one. So back I've, to I've, Steve. I've done enough things to piss off management lately. I'm not going to go there. So, oh, Steve's here. Yeah, yeah. Hey, <laughs> welcome. So back to Steve. What were we going to say? Um, How about now? Say it, bro. Go ahead. So. Steve. <laughs> yes, Brent. Um, I anxiously await your question. I anxiously await his question, too. So I've, I've gone through and sort of walked through how I got to the position I'm in right now. Uh, a lot of our listeners are, I'll say, data curious. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and it's very, very clear that... They are operating in worlds that are behind us in some degree, very similar to us uh, 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Or three years ago. How would you, how would you guide, from, from your experience, how would you guide people uh, making this transition? I think it depends on what course you're going to take. So there's two courses to try to get your team to be more data-driven. One is a top-down approach, and the other one is kind of a bottoms-up approach. Um, So you can either try to find or convince management that this is a good thing, and then management can create the edict that we will go do this, and uh, then start building up the organizational skills from there. Or you can try to make your little section of the world more data-driven and do that in a way that also get your other jobs done and try to become a center of excellence and people might mo- might follow you uh, over time and, and emulate you. And those are both possible routes. Um, I suspect most of our readers, listeners, whatever, uh, will have to be in the second bucket because probably most of them are not directors or you know CEOs or whatever, and they don't get to come down with the, with the edict. They can try to convince management, but it's not always easy to convince management to do anything new and different because it's scary and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the... The pattern is to try to start at the bottom uh, a lot of times, as, as unfortunate as that is. I think it's a harder road to go, but it's also the, the only road available a lot of times. Um, and I think the, the right way to do that is to figure out where 
where you can replace current functionality with this data or supplement it with data. I don't think that you can just say, we're not going to test anymore, we're going to use data. Because I don't think anybody's going to believe that that is effective enough in order to let you spend the time doing that. They're going to still expect their test passes. But you can start running data analysis on the test passes. You can start running data. You can try to get some instrumentation into the builds. A lot of people have at least logs or something along those lines, convince the devs or go at it yourself depending on where you are organizationally and what's allowed. And then use that to try to understand uh, whether um, your, the quality is high or not. I think there's two major uses of data um, in an organization. One use is to understand the health of the product, and the other one is to understand what I call the success of the product. So the first one is to figure out whether or not what you built is doing what you expected it to do, and the other one is to figuring out, figure out whether or not the users are appreciating what you built. Um, and I think it's much easier to bootstrap the first one, the health metrics, than it is the other ones because it's more of a, a drop-in replacement for or a supplement for traditional testing. And uh, I have a couple of blog posts from way back talking about data-driven quality and kind of moving in that direction, which focus mostly on those health metrics. And so I think one thing you can do is you can start monitoring the percentage of time that your test passes fit, pass, or fail. You can start monitoring data about the machines or the builds or the, the environments that they're in and try to f- tease out data from there. Um, and then you can, over time, maybe start getting data from real instances of the application, either through logs or through some kind of uh, you know data API that you have. If you're in a server, you can do it much more easily than if you're, you're running distributed software. Um, and then figure out whether or not that, that can give you some sense for the quality of your product, uh, for the, the health of your product. And then maybe you can turn down the dial on testing and turn up the dial on data. What about your journey personally? So how long ago were you in a, a let's just say, a, a pure traditional test manager role? About three years ago. It was the fall about three years ago, right when we started the work on, on Windows 10 that I moved uh, from a traditional test developer job to uh, a data science job. When, when uh, So Windows was essentially the first of your two ways to get there, if I, if I recall correctly. You, in other words, it wasn't a bunch of small satellite teams trying to convince upper management. Upper man, as This is my perception from outside right. of Windows. It was upper management said, no, we're doing this. It was definitely a... a, a student body left movement like everybody uh has to go this direction we took what was a standard test developer role and said that role no longer exists we now have a quality role which is not the same as a data science role but this thing we called a quality role which is just a label we put on it um was all about using data to understand the quality of our product so we had in that group we have people that are more traditional developers whose job it is to instrument the builds and then do basic analysis on those builds and and understand the area very well and then we have data scientists whose job it is to help bring actual math to the to the problems um, in, in non-basic ways. Um, I'd like to think of, there's a Venn diagram that's, that's pretty popular that says data science is kind of a combination of area knowledge, programming knowledge, and statistics or math. And I tend to think that no one person really has all of those. And so we've almost ended up in a world where the area knowledge and the programming knowledge are owned by one group of people. That's the quality teams. And then the, the data science knowledge or the, the statistics knowledge and then maybe some of the programming knowledge as well is owned by the data science teams and so the combination ends up with a sweet spot in the middle so when when they pulled this trigger were you anxious or excited about it i was personally excited about it i'd thought about it for a while i'd actually been looking for ways to try to go do this in my my old job the difficulty that i had is i was on the team that was developing what was called windows runtime which is the api model for all of the the windows apps uh the app store apps the 
hard part about that is trying to use data in something that has a very long pipeline is super difficult. You can't exactly A-B test an API. You can't send it, you know, one version of an API to, a, to developer A and one version to developer B and see which one works better. You know, you can't really watch for applications to be submitted to a store somewhere six months after you introduce the API and then start gathering data. So it was the one of the more difficult places to go use data, and so I hadn't figured out yet the right way to go use it in that space until the edict came down, um, and then we moved. But even there, we ended up in a world where Although upper management said, go do this, upper management didn't really know exactly what they wanted to do with it either. They knew they wanted to get there, but they didn't know – they'd never done it before. And so they didn't know what parts to appreciate or not appreciate. And there was a lot of, of trying and failing and learning that happened uh, along the way. And so we had a lot of – we're getting much better, but we had a lot of uh, early pressure from the top to go do this. And then various teams tried different things. And so you ended up with kind of this hybrid model where there was a lot of local uh, idea development and talent development and and – ways to use stuff that was developed and then kind of pushed out to other people as centers of excellence. So it was a couple things I wanted to uh, touch on that you talked about. One was uh, going way back the um, this is why I edit. You were talking about uh, you can either have an edict from top or sort of, you know, grassroots and, you know, try stuff and do it gradually. Uh, Generally, that latter approach, in my experience, sticks more. It's harder to do driving from the bottom up. But it, in my experience, in any sort of organizational change, it sort of sticks more. Um, edicts are interesting, and they can often work. They're often difficult to get. You know, all the time I see people, they go to a VP or somebody high up and go, you should demand that the whole org does this. And they rarely ever do that because it, they, it's not always a good thing to make an edict. Uh, but one thing was interesting. I'm glad you touched on it with the Windows one is – is they said so we're making this change, and the how does it happen and what does it mean was all left in the air. So was With, why. So, no, I, no, why was there? Why was not partially there. I'll go more than what or how. So there was this, and either it was, and Steve and I may be on two sides of this, but it may be either um, genius or idiocy of this. Just let a thousand flowers bloom. In the end, it worked out all right, regardless of the, how, how it got there. Let a thousand flowers bloom, and the strong flowers will guide the way for the Slash rest of Slash and burn all the white ones, <laughs> keep the red yeah. ones. Is that I, what I used to describe it like we were sitting on a hill, and we, we, they showed us this picture across the valley of another city on another hill. And they said, we want to get there. And you have this valley laid out in front of you covered with clouds you know, and, and fog. <laughs> and they said, go over to that other hill. And you're like, well, what do I need? Do I need like a camel? Do I need a parka? Do I need a boat? Like, how am I getting there? Like, we don't know. Just go. You know, and so we all tried, and those of us that chose camels, you know, ended up poor in the in the you know middle of the Arctic or whatever. So, um, and and you get halfway there, and some people say, "Let's turn back. This isn't working. Uh, we're not all the way to the city yet. Let's turn back." And so we had those people that said, "Let's go back to the traditional ways of doing things. I miss this part that I had before." And then some of us pushed on, and, and we're still in the process. We haven't gotten all the way to the city. Maybe a few. I think that's have. true across a lot of Microsoft. I think a lot of people have made it to the city. There are a ton of people who just want to go back to their old comfortable city. That that, that comfortable city that's it's full, now been full, raised to the ground. You know, it's full. Of, <laughs> it's, it's full of great '90s grunge music and other things from the '90s. Many other things from the '90s. Yes. The, the problem is that people don't realize that the old way was just not fast enough. Like you're guaranteed to be beaten by your competition. If that's you, what I was if saying. You follow the old ways. Bingo. That's, that's what I was saying when 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 this first rolled out. Like. Um, I think we were still doing uh, we we were doing the podcast then 
one of the biggest things that, that both Alan and I discovered during those phases is explaining to people why from a business context. Because the number one question we got, at least I got from, from um, individuals in the Windows org, was no one's explaining why the old system is broken today. Right, and it's kind of a precursor towards these folks who, um, if if they're forced to journey, are likely to want to go back. Right, I right. think that they're they're we could have been better about that. Um, if you go back, there's some blog posts I have on kind of the development of testing, the evolution of testing, and we kind of walk through. I think the important thing to recognize is that the people who have made it, made it to data science, you know, island or hill or whatever, sometimes look back and go, "We were all idiots. That was a terrible way to do things. It was never a good way." You know, and I think that's wrong. I think there was certainly a point in time and certain. Uh, in, uh, requirements in the in the environment and, and around the ecosystem that made that the right way to go do things, and still to this day makes it the right way way to do certain kinds of work. I think you can't say that data science and data driven quality is the only possible way to uh, handle quality, and it's probably not the end way that will handle quality. There are probably other ways that will be invented later that will replace those a lot of it. Um, but to say that manual testing was always a bad idea or that SDET work was always a bad idea is to ignore what was actually happening in, in the industry at the time. And I think those were actually very good uh, things to happen at points in time when you had certain requirements from the ecosystem. If you don't have the ability to quickly push new software out, if you have to get it into a box and get it onto somebody's desk, you can't use the data-driven world that we have. If you're not connected, you can't use a data-driven system. And so there was a point in time when that was exactly the right solution. We've just moved past that time. Right. I think... I totally agree. And one bit of advice for pretty much anything you're doing is look for efficiency and don't fall into the that, that that's the way we've always done it trap. And don't fall into the that's the new way to do it trap either. Sometimes it's the new shiny way. And so everything has to be rewritten or redone to be the new shiny way. And it doesn't always apply to every part of every industry. Right? If you're working on healthcare equipment, I'm not sure that data-driven stuff is the best way to go. Like, oh, we killed three people. We should probably change that. It it's depends not the on right the area model. of health, right? If it's some, yep. In some areas, yeah. But there may be some uh, – I'm, I'm trying to think while I talk here, but – uh, some more preventative things. Maybe there's a better way to measure your blood pressure. I always see every time I go to the doctor, they have like some better device to measure my blood pressure, and and they have like scales that are networked. And there's a lot of there is room for I think even in healthcare to have more data science and to learn how doctors are using things and to make tweaks in the equipment. Yeah, you got to figure out where the places are. But, what, <clears throat> I think it's always a question of of how long the damage is going to be sustained and how big the damage is, right? And that's how you figure out whether you need, where you need to scale things. And so if I, if I, the advantage of using data is that I can release something into the wild for a little while and I can quickly fix it, which means that the data is the damage that it's doing if it's wrong isn't sustained very long. In the old world, it had to be sustained for months or years because of the release cycles. Now you can have it out there for a day or half a day and fix it, which is all awesome until you have an infinite cost. Right. If, if, if one second of damage or one split second of damage it causes a death or causes major harm, then you can't afford to let that go. And you have to fix it before you possibly or release. or even worse, breaks the Facebook app. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's unconscionable. We are definitely we are definitely in a world where um, we have a lot more options than we did back in the day. I, I do. Uh, to your point, like there is a lot of um, revisionism. Uh, in a lot of the people that I talk to, right? It's easy to predict the future in hindsight. Yeah, especially if you create it. Right. Um, the, 
a lot of the world and uh, uh, back in those days a lot of the world and in a lot of our listeners i think are still are still in what we refer to as the old days yeah right? i think they are they're, they're missing knowledge they're missing assets that we've built up over over the years um the the positive thing though is in today's world there's a lot of other examples to learn from you don't have to treat it as theoretical i know back in windows 95 days if i had brought up anything along the lines of what i do today they would look at me like i had three heads right and it's just because the ideas of this type of work that we do and the benefits of it were sort of academic theoretical at, at that point in time. Well, at that point in time, it would have been impossible to carry out. But even assuming it was possible, you're right. They would have looked at you like, this doesn't make any sense because they were just moving to a large test organization at that point in time. Like that was kind of when a lot of the independent test organizations were starting to spin up, um, I think, around that time. Maybe they just spun up not too long before that. Now back to your personal journey. So you've been you've been doing this for three years. Correct. What did you do to prepare yourself to be the head of a of a data science data engineering team? Did you have that skill set beforehand? No, I didn't at all. I, in fact, I'd never even taken a statistics course when I was in college. So I was uh, uniquely unskilled uh, in this particular in this particular thing. So what I did is what I always do, and I started reading. Uh, I started reading blogs. I started reading books. I started reading papers, um, and then. Around that time, uh, all the the MOOCs, the massively online open courses like Coursera and edX, et cetera, uh, started existing. And so I took a lot of the courses. There's a whole series of, of almost collegiate-level courses that you can take for, for free or almost for free. Um, and so I went through a lot of those um, over time in order to learn a lot of the techniques that I had to go learn. So you have to kind of become rigorous and go back to fundamentals and learn the basics so you can figure out what to apply um, and then you have to read. You have to figure out where it applies and where it doesn't apply. But a lot of it, you have to understand enough techniques in order to go back and be able to figure out which ones to apply and not apply. Is there one thing, if you were to say, if you only do one to start from your experience, what is the one concrete thing you would suggest? If you're trying to, is there a, a data MOOC? scientist? Right. Yeah. So there's there's a series of MOOCs, about nine, eight or nine of them, depending on whether you take the capstone from. Uh, Johns Hopkins University, um, which is called, I think, like data science or whatever. Um, it's on Coursera. And there's a series of, of, they're offered every month. They're one per month. And I would suggest going through that set of courses. It's a very good set of courses. Most of them aren't too hard. There's a few of them that are quite rigorous. Um, but when you get to the end of it, you'll have a very good sense for things. You won't be a PhD by any stretch of the imagination, but you will have a very strong sense of things. And how often have you been finding yourself using what you've learned in your job? Uh, daily, probably. Right. So my job today is as a manager. So I don't do a lot of the direct uh, data analysis, but I overview a lot of the data analysis. And so I will oftentimes meet with my teams and they'll say, we're going to go report this. And I'm like, well, what about that? You've missed this corner over here. Or maybe you should use this technique. And so those all become useful to ask questions, to make suggestions, um, and to understand what is possible and what's not. A lot of data science can feel like magic, and but it can't do everything. And so you have to understand where the constraints are in order to be able to figure out what to tell your teams to go do or to try to go do. Um, one of the things I think is important is to realize that you also need to be willing to make mistakes and willing to fail. And so there's definitely times when I have sent my team off to go do something, and it turned out it wasn't possible to do. Like we went and tried really hard and then realized, you know, PhDs in the corners of universities haven't yet figured out how to go do this thing. So it's probably not possible. 
And then it's your reaction to that that's important. You have to go like, okay, cool. Now we know, and we'll go down a different path. No way. They can't figure out you fire them all, get some smarter people in the room. That is sometimes the the management strategy. That's not the one that I recommend. <laughs> just, um, just just throwing spitballs. Yeah. I, I think we're very much in a world. Uh, one thing that I've noticed is the world of of test development, and to some extent, the world of development is a much more constrained world. Meaning, you generally don't send people to go do something that you don't know is possible to go do. It does happen. Um, you know, you can go read like Showstopper about the building of NT, and there were people that were sent off to go build a graphic system that they didn't even know was possible, and they went off and I think lived on a boat for like three months and came back with a with with GDI or whatever uh, out of the system. But um, that's rare. Most of the time, you're sent to go do something that everybody knows is doable. It's just a question of how long it takes. When you're in the world of data science, you don't know if there's enough signal uh, among all the noise in order to be able to generate what you need. You sometimes will go look at something and realize all I can tell you is there's no conclusive answer. And that has to be okay. There, there's another tangent. This is my job to make tangents today because I don't know nothing about no data science. <laughs> I, I know a little, just enough to uh, freak Brent out. But for the younger of the three listeners, there's only one left, two are here. Um, one thing I wanted to call out it wasn't just that the guys went off and you know, built GDI but it, you know, in seclusion, but imagine, if you will, building complex software without the internet. Yeah, without Stack Overflow, yeah, without Google or Bing, you can't just ask somebody how to go do it. Uh, I, what an archaic world! My job today, some dead trees that will give you a hint. Yeah, my job today would would have been so much harder to get to, and um, I'll double quote master without the internet for sure. Yeah, one thing, and yeah. everything is faster. Uh, the reason that we're Data science is the rules because we're moving so much faster, both for necessity and for, and because it's uh, possibility. One of the great moves about moving to a lot more open source at Microsoft, using things like Git for source control, is all of a sudden uh, we used to have like horrible internal documentation for our internal tools if they were documented at all. But now that we're using a lot more stuff open source, answers are on Stack Overflow. Answers are documented in blog posts. It's 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 been it's accelerated at least one. Fantastic thing our team does. I pick on our lack of data science, but uh, we have a very good modern engineering system. It's all builds in Azure. I point at Brent. Woohoo. We use a lot of VSTS, Git for source control, uh, a whole crap ton of open source, and enables us to move pretty fast, despite ourselves. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to leverage the new world, but it's also changed the way that people learn. It used to be you went and you got a book and you read <laughs> and you got, and that kind of forced you to get a, an overview of the whole area and kind of get deep and realize how the pieces are connected. And now you almost have um, a paging system where you don't even have the data until you need it. And then you go to Stack Overflow or you go to a search engine and you find it. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of piecemeal build this thing up in your head, but you don't understand the big picture sometimes almost ever. You just learn the pieces you absolutely need to learn and then you move on. And that's good and bad. Yeah, I agree too. It's like, I call it just-in-time learning. The Actually, to that point, so you've been here at least 15 years, right? About 19. Yeah. Okay. So I'm almost catching up with you guys. The... <laughs> The <clears throat> the situation you went through three years ago where you were um, told to go into this space, which was fine because that's where you wanted to go anyway. Mm-hmm. If that had happened 15 years ago, what do you think would have happened to you? 
it would have been different, right? It would have been, you know, go find books and read a lot of books and then and then figure out how to go do it from there, um, which is a lot harder. Uh, the, the hardest part, actually, with 15 years ago is that there's no tooling. So 15 years ago, everything was proprietary tooling. Everything cost money or the company had to go build it. And so today I can just go and I can get R or I can get Python and I can have basically every data tool I want at my fingertips and a bunch of documentation on how to go use it. And examples Back- everywhere. And examples everywhere. Back then, you probably would have had to go get a book that told you, here's how logistic regression is implemented in math, and you would have had to turn that into an algorithm and write your own logistic regression routine. I, as, as our listeners know, I've gone back to school on this. Um, I don't, if, if this had happened to me 15 years ago, I don't think I'd be in this role, right? Because it, it, it's... Um, it would have been a lot harder to to quickly first and foremost online academia didn't exist right um so i would have had to gone to uw or some other um travel situation which would have made my life a lot harder uh so much so i may not have done it yeah, I mean, you kind of had to, I actually had to some extent that I was, strangely enough, I was uh, in law school when I started at Microsoft, um, and I didn't have much of a programming background. So I went to UW's website that existed, but didn't have much resources on it, and I, I figured out what books you read for a uh, CS degree, and I read those books. Um, I went to, you know, the local <laughs> borders, and I bought them, and then I read those books. So I have, like, half of a CS degree, because I didn't do any of the homework. C++ programming in 21 days. Probably not. Not so much that, yeah. <laughs> this was Hennessy and Patterson and a bunch of those books. So I was talking with one of my children the other day. Um, actually, we, they were listening to a podcast, and they were talking about you. You are so cruel to your kids. And I'm leaving that statement in the podcast. They think it's cool. They think Alan's cool. <sighs> yeah. So that you drug them too. That's awesome, Brent. Nice fathering. And they were surprised because uh, there was something you brought up. I think it was your music major. And they were like, Alan's a music major? I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, there are... Um, I don't know what the stats are, but there are just a ton of people here that didn't grow up through the prescribed and defined uh, academic route. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a good fraction of us um, that are that way. It's still the, a much harder route to go through than going through a, a computer science degree kind of traditional route to get here, um, both organizationally, like it's hard to get through the gauntlets if you don't have the right degrees, um, and it's hard to get the right level of knowledge Self-taught people tend to have big gaps in their knowledge a lot of times, and so it's much easier to have uh, a better sense about how everything works together um, if, you, if you're forced to learn all the pieces in between. Um, that usually means you don't know the, the details of any given piece as much, but you know how they work together. The self-taught people today, um, the way I've seen I, – I don't see a whole lot of self-taught people today in the resumes that I look at. But I, the ones that I do a, see have been – have a, a, a large number of examples of things that they've shipped and applied. This goes back to what Steve was talking about earlier. I think the way Steve and I self-taught ourselves gave us those overviews that are missing with the way people are self-taught today, which is the just-in-time learning of just a little mm-hmm. chunk here and there. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more difficult, 
uh, if you're learning that way, because you really do need that overview, because systems thinking, whether it's data science or testing, mm-hmm. is so important. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Joel Spolsky used to talk about, uh, he's the guy who created Stack Overflow, one of the guys who created Stack Overflow. Um, and he used to talk about abstractions and how abstraction layers are useful, but they always leak. And you have to understand the level below that abstraction layer. And I think the problem with a lot of today's learning models is you only learn the top level of the abstraction and you don't learn anything down below. You know, and that that shows. I've seen people in, oh. in interviews that will do things like they need to concatenate two numbers together, so they will turn them into strings, add the strings together, and then turn them back into numbers. And I'm like, yeah, that works, but what? How much work just happened in the system in order to make that simple thing happen? You could have multiplied by ten, and you know, added, and instead you you know did a whole bunch of parsing and conversion, and then reparsing. Yeah, but you told me to concatenate, so I concatenated. So yeah, <laughs> technically it got the job done, but not in a way that was useful. I'll, I'll yeah. save the long explanation so we can get onto the the bag. But uh, I'll just say this: for the first time in my career, I'm working on a team full of JavaScript programmers. They're a different breed. Yeah, they are. It's a trip. They're, they're at uh, an abstraction level way higher than I've ever worked with. Mm-hmm. Hey, it is time. And I've never done this in front of anyone but Brent before. Mailbag! I always wondered if you did that live or if that was just in post. Apparently it's live. Live. And a little reverb later. It'd be good. Yeah, it's really hard for him to get the the reverb across. He's He's been it's working on this for a long room. time. Yeah. All right. So we have two mailbag questions. We'll see uh, if we can get both of them. I'll go in order. And Brent wrote down the names for me because I always get them wrong. So Abraham Lincoln said, no. <laughs> Four score and yeah. no. I memorized that in uh, seventh grade, I think. And still have like the first two or three lines memorized, but I won't do them today. Percy asks, where or how do we start with this data democratization thing? That's the word Brent made up last time, but apparently people had heard of. Uh, my company has BI data and analytics group, but it seems that only senior management are the ones getting insight from what information they provide. So uh, how do you start? Oh, Brent, it's your word. How do you start with this data democratization thing? <laughs> it's well, you- sweet. I, I, I am retroactively be going down as record as the guy who invented data democratization. That's fantastic. No. Um, it's one of those time travel movies where you invented it in the future and then brought it to the past. Right. Yeah. Well, um, just a second. Let my mind settle after that. Okay, go on. So, Percy has a situation where they have a data science BI team that essentially services the executives. And he wants to know, how does he uh, get into data democratization? Um, well, so the ma- data democratization means you publish your data, you make your data available. I think he wants to be a consumer of it. So what he needs to do is is start off with what actions does he want to improve the productivity or efficiency? He is a manager. What actions does he want to take to improve the productivity, efficiency of either his team or his product? So you start off with what are the where do you think you can make better decisions uh, and, and take stronger, faster actions? Then what you do is you go and you just talk with that team. Say, hey, I have this concrete situation that I think uh, you have the data for. Do you? 
If they don't, then that's also going to be a good team to get advice from uh, on the data engineering front. In order for you to democratize data, you have to have the data. If if your BI team um, has it, then work with them to figure out how to share it. Now, I'll tell you, a lot of these guys will view themselves as, oh, we, we're the guys that build the scorecard for the execs. So you may need to be able, be willing to pony up resources in order to share that data. Right. The, the thing is that most of the data doesn't exist, is not created by the BI team. It's collected by the BI team. Yep. So one possibility is to go to the teams that they're collecting it from and say, hey, you have this database with this information in it, or you have this Hadoop server with this information in it, or you have this you know, spreadsheet with this information in it. Whatever your form of, of information is, could you please share that out company-wide or to a much larger group of people, you know, not just me, because that doesn't really that's not data democratization. If you say you have this data, can you share it with my team? That's not really democratizing things. That's making yourself part of the special, you know, part of the elite. Um, the better model is to say, hey, I need access to this data. There's others that probably do too. Could you make it more broadly available? Could you lower the the access rights on that server um, and ha- start having that conversation? Plus, any data that you control demonstrate how it works make it openly available a lot of times people are scared to open their data because what might happen if somebody gets a hold of this and i think too often we are there's no advantage to opening and there might be some risk somewhere some existential corner case risk where um we're like okay i don't want to share it because it might cause it might leak and this might happen and oftentimes it's overblown and so i think you have to take a little bit of risk but not much and just the situation that i encounter is is I, I do encounter that. Uh, the teams that I know that lock their data, I would say the primary reason is because they know there's a lot of tribal knowledge baked in into how to use it correctly, and they don't want to be randomized by people doing it wrong, right? Um, which is why I basically say what I told earlier in, the sh- in the, this episode. Uh, I will say that if you're beginning the data in this, in this space, you, you do want to... So Steve is right. The data is being gathered by the BI team from someplace, but the BI team most likely has already done the work to clean and check that data and to encode the the correct tribal knowledge. Start there first. See if they will share it out. If they don't, then, yeah, you may have to go back and reinvent the wheel but you should figure out how to make sure you can bootstrap that domain knowledge and not reproduce it. Right. It is always difficult. Data democratization solves the access to the data, but doesn't solve the ability to use it correctly. Right. Um, and so it, it still really requires a domain expert in order to be able to use it correctly. Agreed. Hey, we have two mailbag questions. We do. But I only sing the song once. Henry Golding who says, so chaps. How long do you think it will be before data science becomes just another tool in the specializing generalist box rather than a separate thing you need to spin up a big team of specialists for? Which I think is a really interesting question. I will say uh, my answer for that is actually pretty short. Um, it Brent, will- you have never had a short answer for anything in 46 episodes of A-B testing. I can't wait. It will be a very long time. The reason why is uh, data scientists, then uh, the tooling is advancing, but the rate at which we're acquiring tooling and the rate at which we are acquiring data science is not keeping pace with the rate at which new data sources are coming in. And 
not keeping pace with with our need to go deeper on data science problems. So we are currently just scratching the surface, and we have a lot of tooling. Um, but as more and more data comes in, we will have the need to improve data engineering. It, there's a sense that, uh, at least in my world, that there's a sense that we're all, always six inches just underneath the the top of the water. Yeah, I think that you'll it will not go away and just become a, a tool, but I think it will become. I think you'll always need data scientists to be pushing the edge and to do the more complicated things. Um, for the primary reason that the thought processes of programming and doing data science are so different and the knowledge bases are so big, you can't keep both of them. You cannot be an expert in both at the same time. That said, I think that the pieces of data science will move more and more easily into the basic toolkit of your generalizing specialist and your specializing generalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they will be able to do more and more parts of it, but they won't be able to do some of the more advanced parts. And I think what it what defines an advanced part and a basic part will, over time, that boundary will, will continue to move forward. You know, it used to be... Five years ago, if you were data science, you had to be a PhD because you had to go invent all your own algorithms. If you wanted to go um, do a, a, some deep learning, you had to go invent your own neural net and you had to go know how backpropagation worked and all that kind of stuff. Today, mm-hmm. you just go and use a package in Python or a pi- package in R, or you go to Azure Machine Learning and you just say, like, please train a neural net for me with you know 18 levels, go. And it will just do it for you. Now, understanding what that is doing and how to tweak it is difficult, but it's easier to go do. And if I just want to go figure out the median for some values or I want to go and create like a simple regression, it is very easy to go do and it doesn't take a lot of knowledge to be able to go do the basic versions of that. And that will move over time up the stack. Yes, and so what we'll find is a lot of, uh, that there'll be a broadening, um, that a lot of the simple problems will be readily automated away. Uh, uh, But to Henry's question, there probably will be I don't know. I'll just make up a number. Five years from now, that the tooling will exist, that the generalizing specialists or a specializing generalist will be able to solve 80% of the problems. And there will be environments where solving 80% of the problems is sufficient. I think solve I'll, 80% of today's problems. But I think, yeah. as always, you'll get to more and more complex problems as you can solve the easy problems. It will depend on, on the competitive advantage. Like, it, the, as. Right now, we're all competing on the basis of speed in, in the world. And I think once everyone is kind of going at the same pace, then there's going to be other things that, that are the differentiator in that market. And I think uh, that's where the deep data scientists will come into play. I think, I think you're both wrong. Not totally wrong. Um, I, think, I think there's another spin on it that I'll get to before we run out of time. I think both happen. You guys are talking, when I, when I sit back and listen, it's like, talking like Microsoft data scientists. But remember, if I'm on a team of 20 people making some cool app, absolutely, uh, there's, a, there's a twist on Henry's question, I need, you're not going to have a data scientist on the team no. probably in 20 nope. people, tw- maybe not even 40 people. Nope. But you absolutely, as part of a team of specializing, generalizing specialists, you need someone with some data science chops, someone who's gone through a couple of courses, not a man, an expert, not a PhD for sure, but gone through the Coursera classes, you know, um, read uh, Lean Analytics, for example. They have some idea of what to do. This is a role I play a lot on my team, so I can advocate a little bit there, is I, I am not a data scientist. I know enough about it that I can tell them we're doing stupid things or where there's things that we obviously need to be doing. Uh, we are now ramping up with some, some data science people in the org to help cover some of the things that I can't get to, but uh, I think you need both. 
at some point, you may need a team of data scientists as you get bigger and you're making more impact, you have more data coming in. But absolutely, I wouldn't say, uh, I wouldn't say there'll be a time when, I think the time when data science needs to be a tool in your toolbox is now. Right. I think the time yeah. when, the, when it's only a tool in your toolbox and you don't have specialists right. is a long ways so, away. So that's, but I think that it's, it's becoming more and more democratized. As, yeah, there's as a subtlety in that question. I, I think it becomes a tool now. It'll be, and I, so I want to make that point. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I think definitely it's, a, it's right. probably never just that, especially, uh, it'll always especially be, with scale. But it'll always be moving on. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll invent another new term today. This is, uh, this is Brent's continuing short answer. Uh, expert systems. So an expert system is a new, newish asset in which you, you apply data science, automation, machine learning, and then you apply, uh, in a rigorous fashion, domain knowledge from particular teams. And I will say, uh, for example, 60% of what I do is analyzing histograms. And there's a very succinct period or a, a rigor around how I do that, what I discover. And that's, I would say, readily automatable, right? Um, so once an expert system or something similar comes into play that can generate these things, do, do, do the if conditions, de- determine what further analysis needs to be done, and then output, go do this. This is what appears to be the problem, right? Um, I think that's certainly doable in the next five years. Right, and there's there's tools that are making it easier and easier all the time. Like the new version of Excel has histograms built in in a reasonable way, which it never has had before. Power BI is now fairly democratized. You know, there's other platforms out there that you can use to to analyze your data and get a lot of sense for it uh, just from the beginning with with very easy tools to use. Very cool. Hey guys, we're out of time. Hey, which, thanks, which, Steve. Which means sure. shut thanks up. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Steve, for coming. Yep. Brent, um, I guess you just showed up anyway. It, the, <laughs> if I didn't show up, you would have been, uh, what, AS testing? What's that, ass testing? You need me. All right, then. <laughs> All right, Brent. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And I am neither. <laughs> awesome. See you next time. Bye, guys.